everybody. Welcome back to the Food Intelligence Podcast. My name is Miriam. Today, Ron is in vacation in Iceland, so we're wishing him happy travels. I'm joined by Neve, our senior product manager here at TasteWise, and we're going to have a conversation about the interesting and complicated world of food service. So stay with us. Hi, Neve. Hey, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Super happy you're here with us. How's it going? Doing well, you know, like uh, super excited. Good. Yeah, I'm I'm really pumped about this. So as our longtime listeners or short-term listeners, if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, know this month is Food Service Sales Month here at TasteWise. So we've been talking about all things food service sales on the podcast, as well as our live events uh, every week and webinars and content, all that good stuff. Um, so today we brought in Neve, who is our senior product manager, uh, who is responsible for all things food service here at TasteWise. He's our resident expert. Um, so I'm bringing him in today to just have a conversation about food service and what kind of challenges are going on in the market right now um, and what data can do for those who are looking to really amp up their food service sales strategies. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so Neve, tell us a little bit as we get started about what brought you to the world of food service. Tell me a little bit about kind of where your expertise comes from and um, we'll go from there. So I'm... In the high-tech scene in Israel for the last 12 years, mainly as uh, a product manager, though I also was a software developer. And throughout the years, I was um, working in industries such as defense and tourism and food and construction. But I was also the CEO of a culinary touristic uh, initiative startup, which is called the Tzavta, which means together. And uh, then for the last five years, I was hosting travelers from all over the globe, speaking about food, cooking for them. Um, so I'm like very passionate to food and people and restaurants and all that relates to that. So that was Amazing. the first one, I guess. Awesome. Great. And now you're at Taste Rise. You're working as a, a senior product manager for our amazing food service sales tool, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and you've kind of been spending your day-to-day -day deep diving into the world of food service and getting to know the market, right? Yeah. Food service is amazing, you know, and um, the product food service sales uh, for TestWise, um, it's uh, like if you need to speak about it, like in one sentence, it's like how to best sell your amazing product in the market. And think about the food service market. Only in the U.S., we have around like 2 million restaurants either mom and pop location, small chains, big chains. And as a CPG or a distributor, if you need to sell your product to someone, where should you start? Which country, which domain? Uh, should you go to vegan first? Um, what is the list and how do you prioritize that? So this is what we do on uh, food service sales in TestWise. Uh, we help you to bring your best product to the best leads with some kind of like a lead generation app that is very uh, targeted to um, the food domain. Awesome. Okay. So let's think about um, where to, st you said, start at the beginning. So let's kind of zoom out a little bit and let's think about um, that relationship right at the start, right? Somebody's getting ready to sell a product. They want to get their amazing product, as you said, out there in front of as many consumers as possible. Um, so what is that relationship like in 2022 between dis distributors and restaurants, right? So what are, what are the challenges facing that relationship? Um, and we'll, we'll get into kind of what data can do in that relationship in a moment, but let's start there. What are the challenges facing the relationship between distributors and restaurants in the sales process? That's a great question. I have to say, 
the way I see it, it's like super hard. As a distributor to communicate with restaurants, nowadays, it's just like impossible. You need to keep like a really high level of uh, customer service. Hmm. Think about the challenges that we're facing like in the last three years. First, consumers are changing habits every day. I know my mother eats the same thing for the last 40 years, but I, <laughs> I change the menu like every week. Yeah. Besides that, we had like a, you know, a, a small pandemic that like Ooh. came in waves and changed everything every like a quarter or two. And due to that also like prices that change, you know, like now we are a global market. We buy everything from everywhere and there are challenges to that. Yeah. A, a, a distributor needs to face all that. The food service industry needs to face all that. And it's just very hard. I think it is, a, it, it is an impossible market anyway. Like I've heard in the past, even since I was young, that like, you know, maybe every kid had this, rest, this dream of like opening a restaurant. Hmm. And they always say that like, it's a super tough industry. I've heard that like the first five years of a restaurant, that you have like 20% to survive. So wow. this market is impossible from the first place. Wow. And it's like what is happening in the last decades. Now, as a consumers, we change our habits frequently. We are exposed to so many social media. We are influenced by bloggers. We change our diet. We cook ourselves. We are fanatic about our body. So all of that influences the way we want to consume. And all of that like, need to be answered in a restaurant right. for an independent person, not for a chain that you have like a unit was like really focusing that, but as an independent restaurant, it's just impossible to track that. So how can you speak a little bit maybe about how um, mom and pop places or single locations right now are, are in this current moment, trying to keep up with this huge amount of data, right? So you're saying that, you know, everything is changing so quickly. Consumers are changing the way that people are eating and drinking. Um, delivery, which we'll talk about in a little bit, right, is kind of throwing everything for a loop. Uh, so how are these places trying to keep their finger on the pulse of these changes, uh, you know, as we move through the pandemic? Not sure they are like even able to, mm. you know, when it's changing so fast and like, let's not forget these like mom and pop locations that maybe out there open for the last 20 or 30 years. You don't know how much they are like uh, tech savvy. Right. I'm not sure that like they are aware or if it's in their awareness to like search for this data or access this data. And how would you even access this kind of data? Right. So you have your best sellers that you are known for, but Selling like something 10 years ago is not like bestseller today. So it's very difficult. And this is why you see many like uh, small places that are just like getting closed. Maybe they hear about it like too late, you know, they wake up like after the trend already emerged and then they need to give an answer, but there is a competitor already gave an answer for that. Right. So I think today they only learn from experience. They'll maybe like hear a customer asking again and again and again, do you have a vegan option? And maybe two years later, they will bring something. There is someone saying again, 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 do you sell any like gluten-free product? And then they give something for that. And maybe it's too late. Right. And it's a shame because in food service itself, the ability to pivot your menus towards new trends is actually 
a little bit easier and and obviously shorter timeframe than a CPG, for example, right? So if a CPG wants to create a new, let's say gluten-free product, that time to market can be anywhere from, you know, six months to a year, um, maybe sometimes even longer. So being able to pivot in the CPG world is a lot harder than in, in the food service world. But when food service doesn't have access to that kind of data to help them understand what they actually should be pivoting towards, it ends up taking a long time anyway, right? Because they're behind uh, behind on the times, they're not able to kind of keep up or even understand what they need to understand in advance. Um, so I can imagine that, that that's really challenging. Yeah, I agree. I think it's not only the challenge of the food service, it's also the challenge of the distributor. Hmm. So as a food service, I'm a small place, I'm ordering my same product every day, but as a distributor, I expect you to like, um, be a bit more proactive because mm. you are the one who's like meeting those thousands of food services and you're the one who's like delivering the food for them every week or two. So being aware to these changes and trying to help your partners grow and succeed, trying to recommend them about different dishes and products, this is like a really good uh, distributors who like know those changes and know how to react to these changes and know to explain why you need this product and why this product will like really help you to benefit and grow. Hmm. So let's let's talk about that relationship then a little bit more. Um, so it sounds like the the relationship between distributors and restaurant locations is quite pivotal, actually, right? It's quite important because um, distributors can serve not only as just the kind of supplier of whatever they're selling, right? But are also a supplier of knowledge and of uh, kind of market awareness for these um, whether it's single service or single location or chains, right? They're they're bringing that information to them and helping them make better decisions. So, what do you think is the most important tactic to maintain relationships between distributors and their their food service partners throughout the changes that we're seeing right now? I'll speak like uh, you know a couple therapy. It's <laughs> all about the communication. It's all about the communication. You know, you need to speak with each other. Yeah, and it's very important. Don't, as a distributor, don't just wait for another order to arrive. And as a restaurant, don't see your distributor as a checklist. Hmm. It's more than that. So I think that like they need to speak, to speak with each other. And the restaurant should share with the distributor what they hear from customers. And the distributor should know how to gather all this kind of information from different food services and should know how to mitigate that and offer different products based on these needs. So, so what, would, what would be an example of that? So let's say that, um, or, or I'll offer an example and you, and you talk me through it to see if it makes sense. Um, just as a side note for everybody listening, this is really interesting for me because I don't get a chance in my day-to-day to kind of deep dive into this. So I'm learning all of this for the first time alongside um, maybe some of you as well. So an example might be if there's a kind of a mom and pop location, maybe that example you gave at the start, right? They have some customers who are coming to them and saying, hey, I love your burger, but I'm recently vegan and I would love a, like a, a vegan option, right? The food service location or the restaurant comes to their distributor and says, hey, you know, we're kind of in a bind. We love your meat product, let's say, but we really need a vegan option. It, is that kind of what you're talking about, about the communication between the two, like using their own kind of private, almost like retail data or feedback data from their customers to then come to their distributor and ask for help? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Share, share the feedback that you receive with your customers, with your distributors, but also vice versa. As a distributor, I'm the, the food service, the restaurant, I'm your customer. Maybe take a look at, at my menu once in a while. See what I'm mm-hmm. offering. And like, give me a feedback. You know, are you for real? Are you still not selling any vegan dish? 
Like, why not? It's the thing. Yeah. Do, you, do, do you have an option for like athletes? Don't you have an option which is like um, protein-based or like um, low with carbs? Like as a distributor, if you try to push that, if you try to upsell, first you will benefit because the food service will buy from you. But second, it's like more than just like money. It's like we're speaking about like a really good communication and a really good level of service. Right. And I think something that like there is a huge potential in that. And it's very difficult to maintain because first as a distributor, I need to track and be aware to all those details with my customers, which is maybe too difficult for me. And this, as I said, this world is changing all the time. The demand is changing all the time. So there are a lot of tasks for the distributors and the food services. And sometimes you just forget about focusing that until it's too late. Maybe I can show it to you an example that like, I really enjoy to see as a customer. Sure. I'm crazy about tahini. In Israel, we have a joke that um, to understand when you are mature is to see the face that you like getting rid of, getting rid of ketchup and switching to tahini. And <laughs> adulthood. Once, adulthood, yes. Adulthood, it means like you're getting rid of ketchup and switching to, to tahini. And once you switch to tahini, like you can never go back. And I use tahini on everything. It can be on my yogurt. It can be on my, like, even pasta with tahini. It can be on a soup. It's insane. Now, as a consumer, I'm crazy on tahini. So every time I see a dish with tahini, I'm excited. But also as a consumer, I'm curious. I want to experience something new. I want to have, like, a different culinary attraction. So I really enjoy seeing that, like, I visited a Japanese restaurant in Tel Aviv, like, several months ago. And they served uh, a ramen bowl with tahini. Mm, now, cool. seriously, Japanese and tahini, that's strange, but the understanding that there is a huge demand for that and the risk and the courage to mix between mm. a demand and between your own character created an amazing dish that like, I'm really enjoying and it's like they're really known for this dish. So I like that example because I think if we as we move through or beginning to move through 2022, right? And hopefully we are approaching a new kind of phase of our reality in this pandemic. Who knows? But let's say that we are. Um, I think consumers are becoming much more open to experimenting, right? We've seen this in, in home kitchens for a long time now, right? Throughout the pandemic closures and shutdowns and all of that, people are using their kitchens as a place to experiment with new dishes and new flavors. And um, for those of you that have, have been listening for a while, we've been talking about kitchen travel and nostalgia and all of these different things, right? That people are are bringing all of their big motivations, as we call them, or like these needs that they want to meet, right? Um, they're looking for something new and exciting and experimental in home kitchens. And we're seeing now that as, you know, food service is starting to open back up um, in a much kind of more consistent way uh, over the past two years, let's say, um, that people are bringing that same hunger for experimenting to restaurants, right? They're looking for the restaurants that are able to, you know, have that awesome tahini sushi dish or whatever it was, right? Um, They're looking for places that are able to kind of understand them before they even know what they want um, and, and anticipate that moment of experimentation and these awesome new flavor combinations or whatever. So if um, I, I bet you that at that Japanese location, nobody was coming to them and saying, you know what? I really wish that you had tahini sushi, right? Because consumers may not have even known in themselves that that was something that they were looking for, right? They would only know that once they had tried it. So if a distributor is able to come to them and say, hey, 
you know, um, maybe they have like a really piece of exciting piece of data or statistic, right? Like we see that tahini in Japanese is actually rising 20% in your primary audience. Why don't you consider, you know, trying that out? And great news. We actually have a tahini product that you could use. That's actually like a really cool moment of collaboration, right? Because both sides are bringing their creativity to play and creating something that then the consumers or the customers are really going to love. Exactly. Exactly. I don't expect the distributor to be like a chef. Hmm. Mm-hmm. They can be, but I don't ex- expect them to be. I don't expect them to like to create the dish. But I do think it will be valuable for them to understand the market, to understand the trends, and to make their customers aware to those trends. So just give them this piece of information, offer them a product that can fit this information, and from them, let their imagination spark. And like, mm-hmm. let their imagination kick in. And as you said, like, when I first came there, I didn't expect to find ramen, tahini. Right. You usually don't put tahini in a soup anyway, especially in ramen. But it was a really good surprise. And ever since then, I'm coming just for that. Amazing. And this is uh, the understanding that I'm speaking about. Awesome. I think I'm going to try that tonight. I was going to make ramen for dinner anyway. So I think I will try a little bit of tahini in there, just in honor of your <laughs> of your favorite dish. Try, you know, like first try with one uh, bowl and see how it goes. See how it goes. <laughs> But it makes the, the sense, right? The like the savory kind of umami-ness almost of tahini. It makes sense, right? With ramen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'll give it a go. Brilliant. Good luck. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you some to, to Israel. <laughs> um, okay, so let's think a little bit then more deeply about that. So we've talked about how um communication and transparency of communication between restaurants and their distributors is actually a form of um, like customer service almost, let's say at least from the distributor side to the restaurants. Um, and it's a way of kind of positioning both of them for success, right? If you know what's going on in restaurants, um, you're able to make more pinpointed recommendations and kind of increase your relationship with them. Um, and if you're a restaurant, you're able to kind of get guidance from and share what's going on in, in your day-to-day world. You're positioning yourself for greater success by able, you know, by being able to change your menus or whatever. Um, so what does that actually mean then? How can how can distributors um, or even the CPGs who who are, you know, their products are being distributed, build kind of functionally those customer service tactics um, throughout periods of change, right? Because it's one thing to say, all right, communicate. Great. That's all well and good. We can make that as a recommendation, communicate. But what does that actually mean? Um, like what do what do both sides of the equation need to have access to in order to build a really successful communication? So my distributor's friends. This is for you. It's all about menus. Okay. It's cool. amazing, but there is so there there is a lot of information just in menus. And if you have one million menus of restaurants in the US, you can learn a lot. And once you um, have your customers and you can track their menu changes, so you can mitigate that. So as a distributor, if I'm aware to either price change or price decrease menu item added or removed, if this restaurant just like join a delivery platform or not, if I'm just tracking these menu changes, I can offer this, my partner, so many options and I can like really help him. For example, my partner, this restaurant just raised price. Okay. Why? Is it because- On one dish, you're saying, not across the board, just on yeah, one yeah. dish. One okay. dish, maybe five, maybe 10, but why, 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 why did he do that? Is it because he's struggling to keep his head above the water? Or is it because the food cost just like raise up? Asking him why he did that and like maybe like zooming into a specific dish and speaking a bit with him about like a salmon dish 
did you raise the price because like you are buying salmon from a div- different distributor hmm. I can offer you a better price maybe I can offer you some kind of a discount so taking this kind of like proactive approach like really helps you to give like a really good customer service and like really helps the restaurant and I've heard cases that like restaurants are so surprised when when a distributor or when a sales representative come with like a solid fact about themselves so it's not like hey I have something to sell for you or hey like uh, I can sell you salmon it's more than that I saw that you have raised the price and I want to help you did you raise the price because you just want to earn more or is it difficult for you right now and you need to cover this difficulty by raising the price because right. if the market raise the price yeah so go ahead raise as well but if it's only you so maybe I can help you maybe like your customers can still like be satisfied because value for money they got what they wanted but also I brought you like a really good price for salmon and that's it wow I really like that because it's it's sort of like building building a customer service strategy on anticipating or not even anticipating but um tracking mm-hmm. tracking the day-to-day or understanding without having to to ask for it right let's say um like coming to a meeting prepared understanding your your customers day-to-day and kind of able to maybe anticipate their pain points in a way that's really special right um I think as you said before couples therapy right like any any form of communication is sort of premised on that taking the time and the energy to really try and understand the Your communication partner um, and I think it's no different here especially even you know particularly relevant here yeah exactly I think the same the same thing can be not only with prices but also if like you adding a menu item or removing a menu item if you like mm-hmm. just remove the menu item that relates to I don't know something from the um, relates to the vegan diet are you crazy what are you doing Why are you removing a vegan option from your menu? There is such a huge demand for vegan option in California. Why, why, why are you removing that? Maybe you will say, well, it wasn't that successful. Maybe you will say it was expensive. Maybe you will say, I'm starting something with a different distributor. Just like have a communication, speak about that. Explain him like how much vegan is trending. Explain him how much like there is a huge penetration of vegan dishes in menus all over the US or especially in California. Give him this kind of information and from them let him decide but it's not something that we can expect the food service owners especially again not the like the small yeah change or like the single locations to do themselves just use the data uh, for those wise decisions so it sounds it sounds like then in this kind of particular communication strategy there's a This it sounds really intensive to be frank right there you're having to kind of understand the market in a way that's communicable so you need to have data in hand about you know consumer interests and what people are eating and drinking and why and you know vegan is 20% more popular than whatever right that's a lot of information in of itself and understanding your actual food service customer what's going on in their menus and why they're changing things whatever so for sales teams um that that's a lot so how do you how do you actually kind of processize this or how do you um like h- how are the people in the market doing this I know here at tasteize we you know we use data and AI to run this so what are people other other folks in the market how are they actually managing this because it's a huge amount of data so what are what are people actually doing a lot of work and we do that not all of them are doing that. Like only maybe only like the big companies because mm. it's intensive and like it requires a lot of manual work so as a big chain maybe as a distributor 
you'll be proactive and maybe you will pay for like a trend report once a quarter. Maybe you will um, hire an army of sales representatives who are like really aware of all your customers and can like really track what they are doing. Okay. Uh, maybe you will hire like, a, hire like a brokerage company that like do it for you. But all these cases are very expensive and they are not scalable. So if as a distributor, I have 20 food services and for these 20 food services, I have five sales representatives. So if I'll have 40 food services, should I have 10 sales representatives? Mm. So every customer that grows with me, like I need more employees for that. So maybe the proportion is like not that efficient. So it's very difficult to track that uh, um, in the industry today. And it also, I mean, based on what you just said about scalability, it also feels like maybe it prevents it prevents distributors and CPGs from being particularly agile, right? Because it's a, if you have this army of of representatives, or you have or sale reps, right? Or you have this army or this uh, this army, this uh, you know trend report that you purchased, right? Uh, trend report, let's say, is a year old, as we're seeing oftentimes in the market, or it's not super you know relevant to right now, at least. Um, and if you have an army of sales representatives that you're you know you're paying, that's that's hugely expensive. Um, and let's say that they're knowledge is specific to a region, right? So let's say you have, you know, a huge New York sales team, all of that is well and good. But if you learn um, all of a sudden that your product could be particularly relevant in San Francisco, what do you do, right? Like you, you can't particularly switch gears all of a sudden easily without a huge expenditure of resources um, to then start targeting in San Francisco, right? So it sounds not only is it manual and hard to scale, but it's also just difficult to be agile in like a quickly changing marketplace, right? If things are changing all the time and, and eaters and drinkers are changing who they are and, and what they're eating, um, it's hard to meet those needs quickly, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's super difficult to zoom in to each client, his cuisine, his region, his audience, and give each client the, base, the best advice based on all those criteria. It's a lot to do. Um, and even if you like working with... Uh, huge brokerage company or like a huge team of sales representatives, teach them and educate them about each customer and like make sure that like they will be the best people to sell your product. It's just like a crazy task to to think about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it is. And is this different for um, kind of big chains versus mom and pops or, or individual locations? Like is the strategy there different or are both of these place, both of these types of places encountering the same issues with kind of manual... Uh, yeah. I'll just guess here, just, just guessing. If I'm okay. um, tracking a huge chain with like hundreds of units, so if I'm tracking this one chain, maybe it's easy for me to see all the changes that this chain is doing because it's only one and this chain probably have like only one menu. So I can track that. I can help them. We can learn from each other. But let's be honest. If you're working with a huge chain, you are huge yourself because like only the big guys yeah. sell the big guys. Yeah, so yeah. it's like one case, but it's not answers all the cases. And once you speak, like when, when you're thinking about like mom and pop places, when you think about small chains, there are hundreds of thousands of them all around the US. And I see them as the pioneers. They are like the one to innovate first. You said it earlier, it's, easy for the, it's easier for them to change. It's easier for them to respond. If I'm like right now, I don't know, in Tel Aviv, it's like a funny example, but let's say, mm -hmm. you know, 
I'll be the first to recognize that like there is a need for like a, a vegan restaurant in Tel Aviv. So I can open it like a day later as a chain to add like a new vegan dish to my menu. Maybe like it will take a year, two, maybe three. So it's like mom and pop locations. They need help first. They need like the, a, a partnership first. They need like to educate the market and they need the market to educate them. So there is a huge potential here that like, I think that today no one is like really using. Yeah. And I think we see that in our, in our data a lot as well, that, um, you know, single locations or, you know, mom and pop restaurants or even not mom and pop restaurants, but that, you know, the more, let's say, um, kind of avant-garde chef-driven restaurants, um, that that's kind of the forefront of innovation that we're seeing, right? So oftentimes you'll see a trend kind of find its footing with some experimental chef somewhere, right? It gets a lot of consumer buzz. Um, we see that then approach, you know, uh, chains and CPGs, obviously those are different kind of innovation structures, but we see them then show up, you know, let's say in a, about a year um, and reflected in, in that area, right? Um, and it's like a cycle that keeps going and going and going. So I think your point is a, is a really good one about supporting um, single location restaurants because that's where innovation in the market is, is happening, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I, I think for the last four years, I hear that like Uber is booming. <laughs> yeah. I'm not familiar with a mega chain of selling Uber. We'll have to investigate. I think uh, one of our, our colleagues sent this morning uh, an Uber dish uh, <laughs> to our company Slack, which brought to mind Uber once again. <laughs> I made I made once a uh, Uber uh, a gnocchi out of Uber, so it was Ooh. like a purple uh, gnocchi. It was amazing. It was like do, during the lockdown, um, uh, like I think it was the second or third wave of uh, wave of COVID, and I was so bored at home. So I told my wife, let's find a dish that like will take like five hours to prepare, and this was like one of them. It was super colorful and and wow. And, awesome. then we, and, and then we were searching for the next thing to do because it was uh, a lockdown yeah. and we were bored. <laughs> like, all right, well, we did our uh, ube gnocchi. Now what? <laughs> yeah, check check yeah. on that. Check, but yeah. you know, that, that's a great example because I think that like going into a, a, a single location and giving him this like prospecting about ube and about how much it's like booming right now, explaining that, explaining why, like the health benefits, the market, the region, and so on, and tell him, as a distributor, I also sell Uber, and this is why you should buy it. Just wanted to let you know, the chances that like there will be a cooperation here are much higher than like trying to do that with a mega chain. Right. This is interesting that I think that like we should be aware of. And I think another example there would be, let's say you're not an Ube distributor, because Ube is one of those kind of more niche ingredients, or any, you know, pick your niche ingredient trend of the day, right? Um, let's say that you're not an Ube distributor, but you do understand that Ube pairs really well with, I'm guessing here, because I've, I've never actually had Ube, but like, let's say, I don't know, what would what did you make with your with your gnocchi? Like... Um, uh, Ube, Parmesan, uh, butter. Great. Okay. So let's say that you're a Parmesan distributor, right? Which is much, is, is, is much more mainstream, right? And you can say, hey, I noticed that you're experimenting with Ube. Did you know that Ube is actually, you know, has a 20% increase in interest? I'm making this up here, right? With Parmesan, I actually have a really great Parmesan that can be a great accompaniment to that. Why don't you try this, right? Um, so there's, there's opportunities here, both for the niche purveyors and also for the people who are able to support innovation with more mainstream items, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. I agree. Cool. Great. 
Okay. So um, we're getting close to time here, but I want to ask a few more questions. So it sounds like um, we've, we've spoken a lot here about menu changes and menu innovation. So I'm wondering if there's kind of any other places that we can explore in our conversation today. Um, so what else? What else could we learn? Last thing, but super important. So last and yeah. not least, <laughs> brand presence. So mm. brand managers, if you are listening right now, this is your time to pay attention. Brand presence is <laughs> cue, cue back in. Yeah. <laughs> Go back from 2x speed back to 1x speed on your podcast listening. <laughs> I think for brand managers utilizing menu data, it's like prices. And I don't mm. know how much they are able to do that today, but it's something that like um, has a lot of information. So it's for those cases, like the just eat, like the beyond meat, like uh, impossible burger and also beverages like Pepsi and Cola and Red Bull, those cases that your brand is the menu item and the menu item is the brand. These cases, you can learn a lot just from tracking menus. So this can work for like many workflows, you know, for like brand managers, sales mm. representatives, sales strategy, marketing managers, all these kind of personas, they can use menus for understanding and answering questions like uh, how my brand performs or what is my competitor's menu penetration mm. or where should I place my next sales representative? Because if I'm querying for Red Bull and I'm, I have access to like 1 million menus, I can learn a lot about that, like right. about like region wise and about the price and about uh, mixtures with dishes and so on. So there is a, a, a huge potential here that um, you can use today. Or another example might be that if let's say that you, you know that your product, um, you have a plant-based product that is particularly, or even like, you know, a vegetable or something like that, that you have seen has a lot of, a lot of success as appearing for just egg, for example, right? Um, one of our clients, uh, then you could identify all of the places that sell just egg and then come to them and, and pitch them as well as your product, right? So it's not just for the product, the, the brands themselves or their competitors. It's also, again, kind of that like pairing idea that we talked about before. Yeah, I agree. Understanding about relationship between brands and about ingredients and dishes and products, it's like, it's interesting. And once you understand the concept, like you can really utilize that. I think that brands have this like advantage that ingredients don't, you know, like when you're searching for a tomato, I can tell it like 100% of the menus in the US sell tomato, but I don't know who is like the supplier behind that. So understanding like your brand presence, like doesn't really help. Maybe if like you have a really unique tomato name or something like that, but <laughs> brands, like understanding that for menus, it's, it's like completely different. Um, I think like a really interesting use case, it's like, uh, you know, understanding the market shark analysis. So let's take okay. you all back to like a uh, math lesson around Great. the age of 10, I think. So... <laughs> You're searching for your brand on menus um, and you find that there are like 10,000 restaurants who sell your brand on their menu. Okay. Now you have, you are the brand owner. So you know more or less like how many pieces a restaurant is selling and you know more or less what is the price that it costs. So if you want to understand like how much you earn a year, you can just need to multiply the number of restaurants by the number that they sell a day 
days in a year and how much does it cost? And boom, voila, you have market share analysis. Now you can do it for yourself, but you can also do it for your competitors. So if you know mm-hmm. that I have five competitors, I can search each and every one of them on a menu, see some number, calculate, estimate, understand where they are stronger in one city or another, in one cuisine or another. So this is like super valuable and you can do all of that just from reading menus. So what does that mean then? We, we did an episode a few weeks ago about um, menu gaps. So what does that, that same sort of analysis mean for menu gaps? And maybe you can also define what I mean by menu gaps when you answer. Yeah, menu gap, it's like a, an interesting use case, you know, um, and, and it's like, it shows how much like sometimes there are processes which are manual and there are just like, you can miss some items based on like a human error. So let's say that I'm, as a restaurant, I'm working with Uber Eats, DoorDash and Grubhub. Okay. So I'm working with the three of them and I'm responsible to add my menu items to those delivery platforms. And I just forgot to add uh, Pepsi to one of those um, delivery platforms. So I am working with Pepsi and I do sell Pepsi on DoorDash and Grubhub, but I forgot to add Pepsi on Uber Eats. This is what we call a menu gap. Now there are tens of thousands of them. And fixing this gap just means that like as either the distributor or the CPG, like the one who's like owner of the product, all you need to do is like, Take your phone, call that restaurant and like ask them, why did you forget? Or maybe you forgot or like, just like add me to this delivery platform also. And just by doing that, you know, it's like money sitting on the table. Just by doing yeah. that and covering all those gaps, there is a huge potential for you to expand and like uh, upsell your business with your partner. We find the same thing with combos. So hmm. This is also interesting. You know, uh, I am working, let's just uh, for the equivalent. So I spoke about Pepsi. Let's speak about cola right now. So okay. I'm selling, I'm selling a combo. Um, and I also working with Coca-Cola, but I didn't suggested Coca-Cola as part of the combo. I suggested something else. So again, there is a potential here for Coca-Cola to call this restaurant and say, Hey, you are working with me. You are putting me on your menu anyway. Why not also adding me as part of a combo? So these use cases are super easy for uh, CPGs to close those gaps. Okay. Is there any, that's, that's all really interesting. And is there any strategic reason why a restaurant would choose not to include something on one platform, but yes, on another? That's a good question. I can think of maybe one, but it's not exactly a reason. It's not a strategic reason. It's just like, I was speaking to someone recently um, who was talking about how uh, beverages specifically can be hard to, to, it, it wouldn't be so much be the case that it would be on one and not another, right? Delivery platform, but beverages are, are, can be hard to deliver, right? Let's say that you have a soft drink or a fountain drink or something like that. It's can be hard to, to deliver them just because of packaging and, and all of that. Um, or, you know, desserts or, I don't know, obviously alcohol laws are different in different places, but cocktails or whatever, right? So that might be a reason not to include it at all. But I'm wondering if there's any reason to include it on one platform, but not another. I really don't see a reason. Um, Like what you just said, it's like, it will be a reason for not placing it at all, as you said, on any menu. But if you're choosing to place your, uh, if you're choosing to work with this uh, delivery platform, 
and uh, you're choosing to sell this kind of item in different delivery platforms. So why not doing it on on this one? Right. Like, it's like um, money, as you were saying, money left on the table. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, we are just at about time. So anything else you want to add before we wrap up for the day? It's a fun, fascinating market. And I think it's like really interesting to try to solve that. And um, who's ever that's listening and like just want to chat about it. Let's have a chat. Like um, I'm learning a lot from that. And there are so many like um, ideas and use cases to explore and to see how we can help each other and like how we can grow. And there are those like industries that um, so used to like a, a certain way and like suddenly surprised with something new like tahini and a ramen right. um, can really like make a difference. So um, let's keep in touch. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Shoot us a note. We have live at tastewise.io is our special email address and that'll come straight to straight to me and, and I'll make sure that you get connected to uh, to Neve, who um, I am so appreciative of this. I learned so much. This is awesome. Okay. Thank you, Neve. Um, I'll give a quick shout out to the rest of our team. So the Food Intelligence Podcast is edited by Danielle Gall. It's produced by Ophir Nagar. Um, and thanks again to Neve Sar for his expertise today. Um, Neve, we'll wrap up. I'll just ask you a question. What is one dish that you're looking forward to ordering in the next two weeks? So I'm going to Austria uh, on Friday. And amazing. I'm not a fan of this cuisine. So I think that I'll just be ordered some kind of a beer or something like that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I think for me, I don't know what. I, I, I will be ordering. I know I will be making the ramen with the tahini, and I'll share that. I was I was just in Chicago, and I had um, I went out to a restaurant and had a carbonara pasta without the bacon because I'm vegetarian. But it, do you know carbonara pasta? It like has the egg yolk yeah. and all that good stuff. But it was served in a, a huge jar, at like the layers of ingredients, and it was piping hot. And then the the server came to the table and then shook it up. Uh, like in front of us, it was sort of like that, you know, experiential eating that we talk about or like tableside guacamole kind of, it reminded me of that. Yeah. And he shook it up and then it cooked like the egg yolk because it was so hot. And then he poured it on the thing and that was awesome. And I would like to do that again. <laughs> wow. Nice. I'm, yeah, I'm like, really crazy about carbonara. Like, it's like, I don't know. It's like eating uh, a, a, a something creamy, but with a character, you know, like the character. <laughs> Creamy with the character. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> That's awesome. Me too. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, we're looking forward to um, being with you all next week on the podcast. Uh, and stay safe in the interim. Thanks. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you. Bye.